Welcome, I'm Valerie Arnold, co-head of North American Distribution at Pazina Investment Management. We're here today to add another episode to our podcast series, Pazina Perspective. At Pazina, we are a global value manager known for our commitment and dedication to disciplined value investing throughout an investment cycle. Today, we are here to discuss small cap value. Let me introduce you to our guests. I'm here with Evan Fox, portfolio manager on our U.S. small cap and SMID strategies. I've known Evan for 13 years. Hi, Valerie. Hey, Evan. Um, And Evan and I are also here with Eric Hageman, one of our housing and banking analysts. You may have heard him on one of our other podcasts uh, where we covered financials. And he's coming up on his ninth year at Pazina. Good to be here, Valerie. Thank you, Eric, for joining us today. As we all know, small cap value has been lagging large cap value for quite some time. We believe this is an interesting time to take a look at small cap. Evan, can you please start us off by outlining the opportunity for value in small cap? Sure, thanks Valerie. You know, th- as you said, this has been a very challenging period for value and for small cap specifically, whether you look at a longer time frame or even this year. It's interesting, I was just looking at a year-to-date performance of just the Russell 2000 versus the Russell 1000 to look at small cap versus large cap. And the differential in performance is over 10 percentage points of underperformance by small cap. When you look even within small cap specifically, the difference between the Russell 2000 value and Russell 2000 growth is 20 percentage points for the year. So really it's been a challenging stretch One of the ways that we look at this empirically is going back to the 50s and looking at the spreads between stocks that are cheap on price to book versus expensive on price to book. And within small cap, we're now more than five standard deviations beyond the mean on how wide that dispersion is. Now, it's incredibly frustrating getting to this point. But it also makes for a really exciting time period because this is when we, as active investors, we find so many opportunities. This year alone, we've already added 10 names so far, probably about double our normal pace. And what's especially been interesting is it's not just one sector, it's been across the board. And so when you look at the new names we've added, it's been chemicals, aerospace, energy, bank, technology, it's not just one area. So, We don't necessarily expect the number of new names to remain as elevated as it was through especially the March, April, May time period, but it's still an exciting time for stock picking, even if, as I said before, it's been a tough market up to this point. Evan, how has the current environment um, with everyone working from home changed how you are researching, um, you and Eric are researching small cap stocks? You know, it's the same process as always, but in some ways we're moving faster than ever as we're all working from home, but so are all the CEOs and they're all available to talk to us when they're not traveling. It was actually just yesterday, Eric and I did a video call with the CEO and CFO of a company. And I think it was the first time since March that we did a video call with two people sitting in the same room as each other. When you think about what our team does, We are really an active team that's always trying to engage with management teams, with experts to understand what's going on. And when we can't do it in person, we can still do it other ways. 
And the video, it'll be interesting to see coming out of this, how many phone calls that we do get replaced by video in future years. Uh, one of the unique things about small cap at Pizzina is that often when we invest in companies, we're not looking, we're looking for companies that are leaders in niches. Because when you think about it, if it's a small cap company that's competing against large cap companies, they're probably gonna lose on scale. In reality, so many of the names we find are leaders in specific areas, such as the largest ambulance manufacturer in America, the largest mailbox manufacturer, leading door manufacturers. So when you go through what our process actually is, it's a very detailed, rigid process that's the same everywhere at our firm, whether you're a small cap, international, emerging markets, et cetera. We're screening using a naive model, looking at historical growth rates and margins and capital structure as a guide for the future. But then when we find names that are interesting, our director of research allocates them across the team to our analysts who are sector analysts that really cover companies wherever they are. So as an example, we have the same analysts looking at small cap chemical companies as European ones, as Japanese ones, and that really brings a lot of knowledge and leverages our global capabilities. What the analysts are doing is they're trying to understand, are these good businesses first and foremost, and then why are they down? As trying to understand that, the focus really comes down to whether the issues are temporary or permanent, and whether the companies have the balance sheet to avoid capital impairment if it does take time to get past those temporary issues. Now that's always a question, but it's especially relevant now as we're in unprecedented times. So as I mentioned earlier, we've added names across a lot of sectors and it's really been an exciting time, especially when some of these are small cap companies that have a lot of complexity. You know, one of the interesting examples we added recently is Cowan. Eric, could you talk through a little bit how we came to invest in that? Sure, thanks, Evan. Very excited to talk about Cowan. This is a recent addition and uh, a pretty cool name to, uh, to have uncovered in the current environment. Uh, so I had been covering the large cap investment banks for some time now. Um, and then when some of the boutique investment banks uh, on the small cap side started to screen cheap, I took a look at them and Cowan was the most interesting of the bunch from our perspective. So just quickly about who they are. Cowan is a relatively old investment bank and stockbroker. They were founded about 100 years ago and they've gone through various iterations over time. Um, in their current version, uh, the company is the result of the 2009 merger of the legacy Cowan Investment Bank and the alternative asset manager Ramius LLC. And what we found in Cowan is the convergence of several elements of what can make a great small cap opportunity. One is that they're undercovered by the sell side. There's relatively few brokers publishing research about them, pitching the story to clients and so on. Um, another aspect is that they, they have relatively complicated financial disclosure, and that might deter anybody who's not prepared to invest the time to figure it out. Um, and then thirdly, the company has had a fairly spotty earnings history owing to the, uh, let's say, not entirely successful merger with Ramius, uh, but they do have a clear path to turning around as they simplify the business and they invest resources where they either have special expertise or some degree of scale. I think the timing is especially interesting because this environment actually favors Cowan 
uh, for various reasons, some more obvious than others. Um, and so as we saw the stock getting just clobbered earlier this year, um, you know, and, and the more we learned about the, the company, the less, the less that made sense. And it became very compelling to us. Um, you know, the obvious way they benefit is that they have a big equity trading business that does well in times of volatility. Somewhat less obvious is that their investment banking niche is in healthcare, uh, particularly follow-on offerings of healthcare companies that are looking to raise fresh capital rather than big splashy IPOs. In the current environment, that's actually been an area of strength. So in, in the second quarter, their investment banking revenues were nearly double what they had been in the prior year, um, and their backlog remained strong even after such a big quarter. And then even less obvious, and this is where some more in-depth work really paid off, they have a portion of their balance sheet that's kind of quietly invested in several very large non-core equity stakes, which based on our discussions with management, we expect to be monetized over time and the proceeds returned in the form of share buybacks. Um, one of these equity stakes is in an Italian telecom company that specializes in Wi-Fi delivery uh, called Lincoln. Another is a stake in Wish.com, which is a leading e-commerce platform. I guess they're called Wish.com because they wish they were Amazon. Um, but joking aside, in 2019, they were actually the third biggest e-commerce marketplace in the U.S. Um, and both of those underlying businesses are actually benefiting from people being in lockdown, whether it's needing Wi-Fi in Italy or placing orders online in the US. Um, so these and other non-core assets add up to over $200 million, um, which is about half the market cap. Now, when you back those out, you're effectively only paying six times normal earnings for the core investment bank and asset management businesses themselves. Um, and just to clarify that, normal earnings is simply the term that we at Pizina use to denote what a company would earn in a quote unquote normal economic environment. And, you know, after resolving any company specific challenges that may exist today. And this is the fundamental yardstick that we use for valuing companies across all sectors and having kind of a common measure of, um, of what a company is worth. And then, I mean, just to sort of zoom out here, I think that Cowan is a great example of how our screening process kind of picks up on a scent of cheapness. Um, and then as we put analyst resources to work on it and start digging deeper, it can become clear that the screen, in fact, did its job because now we're really hitting pay dirt. And that's what happened with Cowan. So it's a great example of, you know, the power of a disciplined search process combined with in-depth research. And then other times, I mean, Evan described the screen as, as naive, it is a blunt instrument. And sometimes the screen can put up sort of a false positive and we take a look and we say, actually, this isn't an interesting opportunity for one reason or another. And we move on to the next name, but there's a lot of value to that learning as well. Thanks, Eric. That's a very interesting um, new investment idea. Um, it sounds like Cowan is a great example of a company which is actually prospering in certain areas in this environment, but is frankly not noticed by the market. Um, 
Are there also opportunities that you are seeing today that are more directly impacted by the current environment? Yeah, there's definitely an, an interesting range of ones. One that's a bit unique is Steelcase, which is an office furniture manufacturer that we've owned for a couple of years. As you can imagine, this is a challenging time as there's questions of how people will work from home going forward, but maybe it's worth backing up a little bit to understand the history of how we got into this and really why this business exists to begin with. We bought it a couple of years ago when sales growth had turned negative and margins were under some pressure. And as I said before, the first thing we try to understand is why does this business exist and is it a good business? We learned that office furniture is a consolidated market with the top handful of companies controlling some 60% of the market and still cases the largest in the world. They were losing dollar share in offices as offices were going what I, through what I call boutique hotelification, made up word, of offices, lots of coffee areas, sitting spaces, huddle rooms, and benches for seating, as opposed to larger traditional offices and cubicles. So at the time, the initial question was, is this a permanent problem? And has Steelcase's value proposition gone away? And what's interesting is that the value proposition for office furniture is not, do you make a better desk than somebody else? It's really, can you make five floors worth of furniture to be delivered on the fourth Friday of the month to the Northeast lo uh, loading dock at 5 p.m. so the weekend crew can install it before com people come back into the office on Monday. And so what they did at the time was they invested in new products. They added more of the couches, the kind of products that people want in the offices of today or as of six months ago, which I'll get to in a minute. And they regained growth and the stock recovered and we reduced our position on stock strip. Well, this year, the stock's down again on concerns around everyone working from home and not needing office furniture. Well, to the point on the company's position, they entered the year with no net debt, tons of liquidity, they were able to rapidly reduce costs. And so can they survive? We believe they're very well positioned and better positioned than their peers. Now on whether the issues are temporary or permanent, it's unclear when office furniture orders will return, but whenever it does, they're well positioned and they're already a thought leader in how the offices in the future may look. And while more people may work from home in the future, you can also say that certainly in the near term, people aren't gonna to wanna to share desks where Eric and I go in on alternating days and we wanna be all over each other's stuff. And people are gonna want more space and so if we do go back to more of an office or cubicle as opposed to people sitting on top of each other right next to each other, that's a positive too. So here, the range of outcomes is pretty positive, regardless of exactly how much office furniture is in the future. So besides this one that's tied to social distancing and work from home, there's some other areas like housing that have been impacted. Eric, could you talk through some of our investments there as, uh, to help us understand that? Well, coming into the current environment, we've had several investments across various portfolios, including small cap in, in building product manufacturers. We've been in this space for quite a while. Um, and from 2009 to roughly 2015, I would say that the opportunities were were, were quite ample in that space um, and we participated heavily in it. 
because there was a big cyclical recovery play based on residential construction being unsustainably below trend. Um, since then, uh, as housing starts have returned to more normal levels, at least they had been immediately prior to COVID, uh, it's been more situational and company specific, uh, which is really what we would consider to be our wheelhouse at Pazina anyway. Um, you know, where the opportunities are based um, today is sort of on resolving uh, company specific pain, uh, restoring margins through self-help or favorably changing competitive dynamics. Um, and so one of the most exciting things to come across the transom in my time at Pizzina, um has turned out to be doors of all things. And you know, sometimes in investing, you get to learn about things that turn out to be much more interesting than, uh, than meets the eye. So if you think about the interior door inside a single family home, you're probably not visualizing a flush slab of wood, um, but something with four or six molded panels on either face. And those molded doors are over 85% of the market for interior residential doors. The way those are made is that you take two molded door skins, uh, which are thin sheets embossed with the, that molded design, and then they, those are glued onto a slab. It turns out that making the door skins themselves is a highly automated, highly capital intensive process where the scale to be efficient is pretty large relative to the size of the market. And so what that actually means is that if you wanna start making those yourself and competing with the, with the dominant incumbents, you better be sure you can get 15 to 20% market share because otherwise you're not going to be competitive. Another hurdle, uh, is that the major customers are all national scale players like Home Depot or Lowe's on the retail side or wholesalers like ABC Supply. And these customers want to deal with suppliers who can serve them nationally. And so for these reasons, the market turns out to be a duopoly. Uh, we believe pretty much a natural duopoly uh, between Masonite and Jeldwen. And uh, we own both Masonite and Jeldwen in the small cap portfolio. Now, we could probably do an entire podcast on Masonite and Jeldwen, uh, but the long and short of it is that for a period of time after the financial crisis, they were, they were both privately held um, and they were competing irrationally with each other. They were beating each other up on price, trying to take share from each other, even though each effectively has 50% share. Um, subsequently, through a series of management changes, and both companies going public, uh, they're now engaged in fierce co-opetition. And what I mean by co-opetition is that each has signaled to the market that it's more focused on pricing and margin expansion than share gains. So if you fast forward to last year, um, last fall, Masonite announced an across the board double digit price increase on all of their North America residential doors to take effect this year and Jeldwen followed suit shortly after. And so we knew that the competitive dynamics were about the best they've ever been coming into 2020. And then when COVID hit, both of the stocks got, got killed along with everything else um, that's in any way, shape or form cyclical. Um, but we knew the business as well. We knew the pricing tailwinds 
and we had strong relationships with management. So we were able to quickly engage with them and get comfort around their liquidity situation and what they could do around cost flexibility. We also surmised that really COVID doesn't fundamentally alter the long-term need for housing, the long-term need for doors inside houses, or the long-term existence of massive barriers to entry in making these things. So we remained as bullish as ever earlier this year, you know, even as the stocks were, were getting killed and, you know, knock on wood, or I should say knock on the door, uh, they've been strong contributors this year relative to our benchmark. Um, in fact, in their North America segments, their profits actually grew in dollar terms year over year in the second quarter. Um, they posted record margins despite double digit declines in volumes. So where are we now? Well, what we're now seeing is that it seems that volumes troughed in April because they've improved each month uh, subsequent to April. Uh, retail partners destocked earlier this year, and now they're in a situation where they need to start rebuilding inventory. Interior projects are picking back up as people are getting more comfortable having contractors coming into their homes. I think the medium term question that's interesting is whether work from home becomes a tailwind to demand for building products. Um, you know, either because people are moving out of apartments and into new houses, or maybe they're moving into old houses that someone's gonna have to fix up before they put it on, onto the market, um, or simply because people are spending more time at home and they start to think about things like extensions or building home offices and the like. I'd also just observe that, you know, at a macro level, most of the job losses have been born unfortunately, by lower income people who are not homeowners. And if you look at aggregate savings rates, they've skyrocketed because no one's going out to eat or flying to Disney World. Um, and that means that the ability of homeowners to finance repair and maintenance projects has actually materially improved. That's a great setup for not just um, the housing space, but really anything that's consumer durable. I think this is also where portfolio construction comes in as an overlay to the stock specific work that we do. Because if you think about the comments Evan was making about Steelcase um, as a, you know, more of a commercial exposure, Steelcase and Geldwin are in a way kind of on opposite sides of the work from home factor, if you will. Um, and so there is some diversification there. Eric, that's very interesting. I know myself and my husband were spending a lot of time thinking about what, what home renovation projects we can get done during this time period. Um, so I agree. And it's really interesting that you cover both investment banks and housing. Um, tell me a bit about how you do that, um, what your coverage is like at Pazina, and how analyst coverage works in general. Sure. Well, my, my primary coverage is investment banks, building products, and staffing companies. And I think that the model we have at Pizina is really the best of both worlds. Um, it was part of what attracted me to Pizina some nine years ago. And, um, and it's really paid off from a professional development perspective. Um, you know, I think that the rotation of coverage allows analysts to remain fresh and avoid feeling pigeonholed. Most analysts will cover two or three sectors and we'll cover them for you know three to five years and then we'll rotate off of them. 
Um, the rotation of coverage also allows us to deploy analyst resources where the opportunities are. I mean, when in a, in a low interest rate environment, for example, maybe REITs are not going to be kind of where the value opportunities lie, for example. And if we had a REIT analyst who had to sit around twiddling his thumbs for five years, that wouldn't be uh, very productive or very rewarding. So we're able to be somewhat dynamic in allocating our people uh, where we where, where they can actually generate alpha for our clients. Um, I think that specialization can also be very helpful for seeing the big picture in a space. When, when you've focused on an entire sector, you can put into context which companies have strong franchises, which have weak franchises, which companies are, you know, kind of uh, struggling in ways that their competitors are not. And that, that will help you identify value opportunities. Um, and I think that specialization is really required for certain areas with arcane accounting or arcane regulatory frameworks. Um, and I, I would say also that rotating coverage works especially well in a low turnover place, meaning low employee turnover place like Fizina, uh, because what you end up having is you'll you'll have multiple people who've at one time covered a given sector and that fosters a lot of both mentorship and debate within the team my first sector when i joined the firm was life insurance which i actually took over from evan when i joined and i think that getting assigned life insurance seems to be a bit of a rite of passage at Pizina because i think it's historically pretty much always gone to the new guy or gal uh, for reasons that may be somewhat obvious. Um, you know, but Evan got lucky because not only did he, uh, because although he did cover life insurance, he also got to cover RV manufacturers, which I think was a particularly fun <laughs> sector to cover. <laughs> um, Eric, are there, and, and Evan, are there any other sector themes that have recently popped up for the small cap portfolio? Uh, you know, Valerie, one that's interesting is energy. And what's unique about energy is it's an area where we haven't historically found a lot of names, not because we didn't think energy as a sector per se was cheap, but to the point I was making earlier that often the small cap companies are subscale competing against much bigger players. And so if you're just going to invest in smaller oil service companies or smile, smaller E&P companies, that are not able to compete with the bigger players as effectively, that's not a good investment strategy as we look at. What's been particularly unique is that over the course of this year, as we went through a demand decrease at the same time that supply increased, it led to all the oil service stocks really getting pummeled. And we were able to add two names, National Oil Well Varco and Technique FMC, that are leaders in the oil field uh, service equipment market. And these are both names that we owned in our larger cap portfolios that were now small cap. And so our energy analyst already knew them incredibly well, and we were able to act quickly in adding these names to the portfolio. If you're interested in learning more about uh, some of our views on energy, I know we have put together some energy pieces that are on the website, or feel free to reach out to us. 
That's interesting, Evan. Are there any areas that screen up, but you um, you haven't been able to make any investments that you passed on, maybe? You know, retail is always an interesting theme in small cap, where when we naively screen, based on history, we do always get a lot of small cap retailers that historically made more money seven to 10 years ago. And now when we look at it, we really are trying to understand, is there a need for these to even exist? Or are they structurally challenged and going to be facing more and more pressure going forward? We've spoken to many management teams about these, many of the large department stores that you've heard of and others. And getting back to the original part of our investment process, we have to get comfortable with that they're good businesses. Some of the surviving retail stocks may do very well, but it's unclear how many need to survive and whether the current footprint allows them to make the necessary transitions. One example that's a, a different way of playing retail that we did make an investment in is PVH, which is the company that owns Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, and a number of other brands, but those two make up 80, 90% of the economics. What's interesting about them is they do have a retail presence, but more than half their business is tied to wholesale and to royalty, which means that a lot of their sales come from sales through different channels. So even if JCPenney goes under or Lord & Taylor, whichever goes under, people may still buy the products from Macy's, Amazon, or whoever else survives. And so it's a different business model. And PVH is another example of a company that we've historically owned in our larger cap portfolios that we were able to add to small cap as it came down. So that's just when I make the comment that retail is an area that we haven't found names, there are some unique elements and unique companies where we can find uh, positions. You know, Evan, I'm, I'm just curious to ask you about your comments on the retailers, because a, a lot of what we do in value investing, not always, but often involves a bet on reversion to the mean on things getting back to to where they were historically uh, because that's what tends to that's what tends to happen with businesses that are cyclical and have ups and downs for something like a retailer maybe even one with an ostensibly storied history a household name that you know everyone's heard of neiman marcus or something like that you know how do you establish for yourself whether they need to exist and how do you turn that into a researchable question. What are you looking for as an indicator that this company does need to exist and this one maybe not? It's a great question and a challenging one that we've been working on for years really in the retail space because it is a very fragmented space and you can have companies that are on fashion trend for many, many years. That doesn't mean that they're gonna be on fashion trend in the future, that we've gone through very long cycles in terms of what the type of products are that people want to buy in the market and the channels with which they want to do them. Comparing this to Mason and Gentleman that you said before, there's actually two players that make doors. They're dominant and doors are something you need. Clothing, there's many channels, there's many companies that make them and even the type that people want over time differs a huge amount. And one of the things is it's not completely researchable as to which retail brand will be successful in two years. And so it's not that none of these will survive or will do well. 
It's that we can't get the downside protection that makes us comfortable. You know, it's certainly been my experience as well that it's much harder to get excited about a mean reversion thesis when the underlying business doesn't enjoy at least some sort of barrier to entry or other source of franchise value to defend its economic relevance for years to come. And typically, I think that a well-known brand alone is not enough. And that's part of what makes the Masonite, Jeldwen, and other opportunities we've been discussing so exciting. Let me wrap up by reflecting on the beginning of our conversation, Evan, when you mentioned the dispersion in performance between small cap and large cap. How has that um, impacted the valuation we are seeing in small cap today? Overall, market levels are at all-time highs in terms of some of the large benchmarks, and that's led to concerns about uh, the market. But when we look at our valuation framework and the cheapest quintile of stocks on price-to-normalize earnings, the, the cutoff for small-cap value is actually at some of the lowest levels we've seen in almost a decade. So when we think about it that way, it really actually looks like those dispersions are wide, and as Eric and I have been talking about, there's a lot of unique names we found in light of that environment. Thank you, Eric and Evan, for joining me today. It's exciting to see how many new names are going into the small cap portfolio. I know our audience appreciates the firsthand insight into our research process and our small cap strategy. If you'd like to hear more podcasts or, or read our uh, thought pieces online, please visit our website at pazina.com.